This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. It's that time of the day, 4pm on a Tuesday, and time for two hours of Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. First thanks to Anne McAllister with the Celtic Folk Show, and remember at 6pm tonight it's done by law. But in the meantime... We hear from academic and peace activist Val Noon about his visit to the Catholic Worker Soup Kitchen in New York State in 1976, where he met Robert Ellsberg, who introduced him to his father, Daniel Ellsberg, the military analyst turned peace activist, who, with the Pentagon Papers, exposed what the public had not been told about the war in Vietnam. Brian Tui has been writing and researching for many years in journalism and with a number of books, and the latest is Secret, The Making of the Australian Security State. But today it's nuclear-powered submarines. What they are, how reliable are they, and indeed why the federal government finds the need to have them. Part two of my interview with Palestinian writer and political activist Jaffa M. Ramini. His story began in 1948 when the Haganah militia stormed his family home and his journey for a free Palestine to this day. Richard Tanter with a secret, the issue of the US bases in Australia. How many there are, where they are and why we're not being told. But as usual, we begin with Mr Kevin Healy and look back on his week that was. A week, Jan, listener, when the threat of giving the Terranilius non-people a voice was exacerbated by a further threat, a treaty dividing the country even further on racial grounds, so logically expressed by the caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit parties, verified by the incisive minds of the Lord Rupert of Wapping News, very limited lackeys, or sorry, journalists, who know we can't have a racial divide with a race that doesn't exist, with non-land, non-people. And that's one of the problems with not having nearly enough detail about this voice thing, and indeed never able to have nearly enough detail about the voice thing, which runs the risk of implying the non-people might just be people after all. And as for a treaty, we have absolutely no detail. Deputy caring business class supremo Susan Lees and Dregs expressed her concern, not assuaged by an interviewer suggesting we are talking about the voice thing and not the treaty thing, while Susan picked up the red herring that fell out of her handbag, and her all-things-to-all arch-conservative people supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, bemoaned he could not attend Gama because they, you know, might say, you know, like, hurtful things, so I can't gama gama like. And there's nothing worse than hearing hurtful things from people who don't exist, and there's a lot of non-existent non-people at gama, and it's a sad reflection on the racial divide these people want to bring to our homogenous, no racial divide in the slightest nation, that the entire coalition front bench felt it couldn't attend gama when all it wanted was a sensible debate and vital detail, 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 but 
How can you have a sensible debate with terrenalist non-people and a government whose detail is never enough detail? Global economic giant PwC for pricks with confidentiality was forced to comply with a tax practitioner's board order that it train its staff in honesty, indeed honesty, integrity and keeping client information confidential. And I'm sure we can all spot the big problem here because obviously it couldn't be in-house training. None of them would have the slightest idea about the subject matter. They'd have to commission an outside consultant. And then we thought, but 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 they'd be hard-pressed to find any consultant. KPM Cheat, for instance, who also has the slightest idea about the subject matter, about te- honesty and integrity. So not sure how they circumnavigated, circumnavigated that dilemma. To do to death an analogy we've thrown up a few times lately, it's like asking a snake not to be a snake. No connection, of course, but a mortgage broker reported this week the big four banks had increased their interest rates for new customers over and above the rate increases announced by the Reserve Losses Bank. And obviously you've done the same over and above with the interest you pay depositors, we asked. Of course not, but, but, but to balance the books, we have reduced those rates in proportion to the increased rates we charge at the other end. But, but, but why would you do that? We call it the big C. Oh, so obviously you know it's ripping off. You, you mean cheating. <laughs> of course not. Capitalism, silly. Capitalism, business, good business. What universe have you been living in? Oh, and naturally, we'll have to extract our interviewing a banker fee from you, and you came in the front door, so you're also up for our walking past the door fee. I, I hope you've got enough in your account, or, or we'll have to take further action. See for cheating. <laughs> what nonsense. Sadly, I am now subject to further action. The Nab Your Money Bank is running these ads telling us if we've got the odd financial problem, like not nearly enough of the hard-earned, they understand and can help us. Which, given the only logical solution is getting more money, I'm having a bit of trouble working out how they can help us. They're certainly not helping the borrowers they're ripping off on one hand and the depositors they're ripping off on the other. So... We presume the ads have nothing to do with them. In other words, nothing to do with their customers. Fossil giant Woodside with Profits celebrated its contribution to world record climate extremes across the globe. As a report showed, heat killed 61,000 people across Europe alone last year, and this year is even more unbearable, celebrated its contribution by threatening to sue long-haired commie greenies who released a stink bomb, a stink bomb, listener, in its Perth offices, criminals polluting its controlled atmosphere, the good corporate citizen claiming loss of the profits that come from creating climate records. Some cynics might gasp at the arrogance of a major contributor to the destruction of the planet, suing those trying to prevent that destruction by tossing a symbolic stink bomb. Worse, a few days later, turning up outside Woodside with Supremo Mego Newby for Prophet's home, her sacred domain, and waking up the whole family, waking them up, noise pollution, shame! Western troubler was his supremo Roger Cook the Planet expressed it beautifully, calling those trying to prevent that destruction extremists, 
terrorising poor Meg's family and telling us gas is good for us and for Western Troubloisie and he can't understand why a great corporate like Woodside With is a constant target of extremists who oppose climate change. It, it is hard to understand, isn't it? We say top marks Woodside With for sensitivity and relativity. Sue them for all their worth, which we suspect is not a hell of a lot. And as coal prices soar in the New South Wales government is contemplating a super-duper obscene profits royalty increase, coal behemoth Glen Rotten to the core warned it against a revenue grab. Selfish, selfish government, which will put investment and associated jobs at risk. What a caring, caring company. And the extremes across the globe show just how badly Mother Earth needs more and more investment in coal. Newspaper ad appeared this week for Mob called Slater Burn Your Money, telling us just how wonderful they are at their line of business, which happens to be that most esteemed of occupations, debt collection. No collection, no commission, it advertises. We take the stress out of debt collection. Now, we can be assured that wouldn't apply to the poor bastards they're chasing for the debt. Helping businesses for over 12 years and still going strong. 12 years. Wow. Seriously, I think we all owe our friendly debt collectors a debt for the invaluable role they play in the greatest little economic order of them all and their admirable courage, because everyone hates their guts. Thankfully, everyone loves caring employers, and the most pertinent and uh, timely warnings this week came from our old mate Industry Profits Group Supremo Innes Will Cost the Workers, who sensibly dismissed socialist planned caring business class relations changes as slogans and myths, which worse, will do nothing to lift all important productivity. Productivity, productivity. See, Innes hates slogans and myths. The system is built on conflict, he saged, and caring employers know there is no conflict between caring employers and the lazy, avaricious workers they so care about. Because unlike workers and evil unions, they know there is no such thing as class struggle. So obviously, just an inadvertent oversight caused by the complication of awards, which Innes also condemned this week, that Woolworth's Trillions has been charged with underpaying 1,235 former workers their long service entitlements. Huge fines involved, but Innes's Victorian Industry Profits Group counterpart, Tim Papermoney, said the law needs to be careful about overreach here. The bar for criminal action should be high. Good point, Tim. 1,235 workers, more than a million dollars stolen, or sorry, inadvertently underpaid, of course. Not worth worrying about, apparently. So just clarify, Tim, how high should the bar be? After real-life train killer games showed yet again that train killing means train killing, our Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive, Richard Malls, the bad guys, said... They died making a difference. And I'm sure we all thought, uh, what difference? Real-life trained killer games, training to kill whoever our fatherland, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, orders us to hate and kill. The only difference I could determine was 
they went from being alive to being dead. As the trade-killing practice continued, mentioned last week our close, close, close relationship with the USOB was typified by USOB Secretary for Being Offensive and Trade-Killing Lloyd Austin Our Pocket, who described the relationship as, True Blue Aussie is on side with us. See a good, loyal lackey, and we'll remain a close, 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 good, loyal lackey as long as we stay on side with the US of. And right now, there's not the slightest risk of not being a good, loyal lackey with our relevant acolytes from Big Supremo Anthony Albing Uzi Downs, tongues coated in brown and black from licking the red, white, and blue as the sundry ministers and secretaries for war and going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect got together to talk a bit of train killing and slaughter. World order. Uh, so finally, our very, very, very close friend boasts being the only champion of world order to unleash nuclear weapons on civilian populations commemorated last weekend on Hiroshima Day. Good afternoon. And many thanks to Mr. Kevin Healy for his week that was. And you can hear Kevin again tomorrow morning. City limits between 9 and 10 a.m. on digital, 3CR, analog, 8.55 a.m. or on the web, 3cr.org.au. Go to streaming or podcast. And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn, we're actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. It's coming up to Science Week again, and that can only mean one thing. Yes, it's the Lost in Science Trivia Night. Monday the 14th of August, 7pm at the Carring Bush Hotel in Abbotsford. Come early for dinner, bring a team, win prizes, show off your brains and raise money for science on the radio. Send an email to book your table to lostinsci at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-I-N-S-C-I at gmail.com and we will sort you out for tickets. Lost in Science Trivia Night, Monday the 14th of August. Remember to tune in each Thursday at 8.30am for all your sciencey goodness. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. 
and check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. In an interview in 2019, Daniel Ellsberg, the military analyst turned peace activist, said that his experience with the Pentagon Papers showed that an act of truth-telling, of exposing the realities about which the public has been misled, can indeed help end an unnecessary deadly conflict. When everything is at stake, it is worth risking one's life or sacrificing one's freedom in order to bring about radical change. And in March this year, announcing his terminal cancer diagnosis, he said, When I copied the Pentagon Papers in 1969, I had every reason to think I would be spending the rest of my life behind bars. But thanks to Nixon's crimes, I was spared the imprisonment I had expected. Today I'm speaking with Val Noon, writer and peace activist. He is a fellow of the School of Historical Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. Val writes that he was honoured to spend time with and speak with Daniel in 1977. Val, this meeting with Daniel came about due to your connections with the Catholic Worker Movement in upstate New York. What was that connection and what was happening then and in the US in general when you were there? My connection with the Catholic Worker Movement goes back to being a young man of about 20 and starting to read the paper that Dorothy Day edited from New York called The Catholic Worker. But I was also reading a local paper called The Catholic Worker, which John Ryan and others just edited here. So there's a kind of a, a small minority movement within the Catholic Church, you know, those are the days in which the, the Bob Santa Maria, you know, the secret sort of anti-worker movement had a lot of sway in the Catholic Church. So that was a dissenting view. So as some of us, you know, there, there was always a minority. Well, I mean, half the Catholics probably voted ALP anyway. But in the DLP days, there were people interested in the peace movement and there were people interested in social justice. And Dorothy's thing was built around, you know, that soup kitchen down on the Lower East Side in New York, a newspaper called The Catholic Worker. She believed in not paying taxes for war. She believed in voluntary poverty. And she believed that we could go forward by bringing educated and workers together in what she used to call roundtable discussions. Anyway, so I've been part of that since I've been young from a distance. But then in 1970, Dorothy Day, the great leader of that movement, probably the most interesting woman in, in the history of Catholics in America, Dorothy Day, came here as a guest of Roger Pryke and John Heffy, and she gave a talk at um, Melbourne Uni in Sydney. She spoke at the Sydney Town Hall with Jim Cairns. It was the year of the moratorium. You know, that was a great boost to all of us young people then. She was 70-something years of age, you know, and it's a great strong voice for peace and social justice. The long and the short of that is that my wife, Mary Doyle, had been involved with my brother Brian and Judy Chow and Chris Tucker, in a house of hospitality, a little small open house for homeless people in Fitzroy from about 1969 onwards. Mary and I were married in 1974. By 1976, thought we might go and visit the, the great group in New York, the Catholic Worker Group, and we were the guests of 
the Catholic workers. And at that place, one of the young volunteers was a 21-year-old bloke called Robert Ellsberg. He come from a, I know a Christian scientist family. I think Ellsberg, of course, was a Jewish family originally, but I think Daniel Ellsberg had become a member of the Christian science group. Anyway, but Daniel came down, became part of the Catholic workers. He was terrifically good, friendly person. And he very kindly set up a chance for me to meet Daniel. Stay with the Catholic worker for a little bit more. It's a very exciting thing to go to that place on the Lower East Side. They were on the on First Street. They had an open house and a soup kitchen. And on Third Street, they had a place especially for women. And they had the farm up at Tivoli. Dorothy Day sort of, uh, and her co-founder, a bloke called Peter Moran, they were very keen on setting up rural um, farming cooperatives, you know. But what happened with Dorothy's movement was that the, the farms always became sort of house of hospitality for, you know, people might be a bit broken down, you know. So they weren't always very productive. Anyway, we spent a few months there and we, and we helped out on the farm. We had, actually, we took on a fair bit of work in the kitchen. Mary and I had an experience and that sort of thing. Oh, you, you meet people who were down on their luck, either just both economically, people who'd been on, on drugs and, and, and so on and so forth. But they were they were made accepted in this extraordinary community, a high level of acceptance, and something, quite a number of them sort of settled down and found ways to go forward. You know, it was just uh, the generosity of those people uh, who were working with Dorothy was just terrific, and uh, we, we were very excited and delighted to be part of it. What did you think of Robert? How did you get on with him? Just a terrifically bright and active. Uh, you know, active in the peace movement, active on the practical things of serving soup and uh, helping people clean up and get clothes, new clothes, all the things you could do in a place like those uh, those soup kitchens and open houses. I, I suppose he he had, I think he started doing law at Harvard or something like that, you know, and dropped out, as a lot of people did when they realised the state of the American nation, you know, the, sort of getting their higher degree didn't seem as important as doing something to stop the war in Vietnam and do something about poverty at home, you know, in America. So he's part of that terrific upsurge of wonderful young people that you, you met, you know, all over the States at that time. So you started talking to him about his family, his father? 76 is, uh, what's that, that's five years after his father, uh, Daniel, who had, um, as, as, you prob- as your listeners probably know, he had been working for the RAND Corporation, subcontracted to the American Department of Defence and Foreign Affairs and so on. In 1971, he was Anthony Russo, released to the press a classified US study of what were the real origins of the Vietnam War, you know, and that that became known in the press as the Pentagon Papers. Well, those documents revealed, you know, that the Tonkin Gulf uh, incident wasn't really an attack by North Vietnam on America. They found out that uh, the war had already been killing a lot of civilians. And when they used to say the number of communists were killed and such and such, it usually meant a whole lot of villages had been killed. Uh, and, of course, the main thing, one of the main things they showed, of course, that that whole propaganda story about there being an invasion of South Vietnam by North Vietnam, that was a lie. What you're looking at was a national revolutionary movement uh, which uh, had been divided by the Geneva Agreement and America was intervening to prevent the unification of the country. America was the invader, you know, and so uh, we talked about all those sort of things and I had uh, been working on a magazine here called Retrieval back in the uh, 71 period when that happened 
actually I'm talking on 3CR today, I just was remembering uh, one of the early articles we published was uh, an interview we did with Bevan Ramsden about what plans he had to start up an independent community-run radio station, which is what 3CR became. You know, So it's nice to think of a chance in, in, in my old days to be talking to, um, to 3CR again. Of course, I've put in a fair few years there with Jimmy Cusack on the, uh, the Republican, Irish Republican program too. But anyway, I'm telling you that because people here in, in Australia found confirmation of all the, the worst fears we had about the war. For example, there's a place over in Canning Street called the Centre for Democratic Action. You know, Harry Van Morse, Francis Newell, Michael Hamilton, all those uh, wonderful people who were campaigning against the war. But what, what they did was they, they got hold of a six-page summary of the Pentagon Papers, an enormous document of thousands of pages. Found out that oh, I'm going to jump all over the place here a bit, but Robert, who had been, I think, about um, uh, 14 or something, you know, when they when his father decided to release the papers, he, he spent days with his father photocopying this illegal stuff to help him get it out. But anyway, what I'm saying is that when it got out, it confirmed people's uh, understanding here and that the CDA, Centre for Democratic Action people, they published a, a terrific six-page summary of that and put it around. So we, we, we were in tune with the, the great achievement of Daniel Ellsberg coming from the other side. I mean, coming from a, being a trusted military analyst, a top-secret clearance and all that sort of stuff, uh, risked his life. I mean, he, he certainly risked life imprisonment. And we now know that Nixon at one stage actually considered getting an assassination done on, on Daniel. Anyway... In all that situation, we were keen on Daniel, what Daniel had done and to meet his son and to get to become a friend of his son and then his son to say, well, I'll give Dad a ring and see when you get to California on the way home, you know, he might uh, see you. Well, Daniel was just so generous. He invited me for lunch, you know. I mean, who am I? I'm a sort of a small uh, activist from Australia who makes friends with his son and uh, that was just terrific privilege for me to be able to sit and talk with Daniel and I learned so much. And you learned about the Australian Connection. Daniel had uh, spent two years going around the whole of Vietnam for the American um, foreign policy establishment and the army, checking on the progress of the war. And one of the things he did was interview an Australian soldier who was pretty famous in those days by the name of Ted Sarong. He was a brigadier in the Australian army who had been head of what was called the Australian Army Team, the first soldiers that Australia sent to, to Vietnam in 1962 before the uh, regular soldiers and the conscripts went. It was a small group. They were supposed to be there as advisors, but they kind of were very soon in combat. Well, Sarong had um, come out of Melbourne. He was, a, I think, he grew up in Abbotsford, just down here near where 3CR is. Gone on to a high position, and he he'd made a name for himself in the army for being a, a leader on how to fight the Asian revolutionaries. You know, he'd, he'd worked for um, the Burmese bloke Ming Win, and he'd. Uh, He'd worked for the Americans in Vietnam. And uh, so Daniel interviewed him in 1965 about how he saw the state of the war. So when I arrived to have lunch, we had some preliminaries, and he then put on the table this two-page document, which was his own typed-up notes on a conversation, a formal interview he had done with Sarong back in 1964 about the state of the war. You know, well, that was a great uh, gesture of solidarity to share something he'd got in his capacity and, and to, uh, to confirm, of course, um, what we thought and knew about the war, but to give me more detail than I knew about Sarong and his position.
Well, the Ellsberg had it. I mean, he had it in '65. That's it, uh, 11 years later. He he dug it out of his archives to share, share with me, and he said, "Well, that's uh, that's a little connection I had." This is Ellsberg speaking. Daniel said, "This little connection I had with Australia was to meet what was then in uh, well-known Australian anti-revolutionary military leader." You know, what impact did Sarong have on Ellsberg when you met him? It gets into sort of the really nitty-gritty of what they were doing at the time. This is 1965 was when the Americans decided to put in, as you know, they eventually half a million soldiers, but they decided to, to go in on the ground in a big way and to start bombing uh, parts of Vietnam and so on. Um, and the conversation clung around the question of the local police and the local uh, volunteer um, citizens' military service on behalf of the American side, both of which weren't doing very well, you know, and, and Sarong was concentrating on trying to make them more effective militarily in, in, in the cause of America, and, and in particular to try and kill members of the, what was called in the press the Viet Cong. The Viet Cong was the press name for the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam. That was the, um, the people who led by the Communist Party, but they were the patriots who were trying to defend Vietnam from the Americans. They, they would do things like go into the villages and find out who the activists were for the Viet Cong and assassinate them. And, and Sarong was on, on record as saying, yes, yes, we did we did kill teachers and, and school and um, postmasters and so on because we had to get rid of the infrastructure of the, of the Vietnamese uh, resistance to the Americans. Anyway, Daniel was asking Sarong whether the existing volunteer militia, who called the Popular Forces, whether they could be strengthened and what they could do. And well, I'll take you into a bit of detail. I don't know that people these days need to know all this, but I mean, Sarong said no because the army of the um, American side, it was called the Arvin, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, well, they preferred to take postings in the towns and cities and were, they were sort of relatively well-to-do people. They were French origin, they were second educated. And unlike the Vietnamese revolutionaries, they were out of touch with the local farmers. I mean, the, the strength of the Vietnamese resistance was that it was built on all the farmers who supported the cause of national independence, you know. So Sarong so was fairly critical of the people he was supposed to be helping uh, and he was prepared to acknowledge to um, to Daniel that the VC had better base in the community, but then the nuts all the same. The, 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 the sort of mystery is why a person like Sarong would then go ahead and keep working for the Americans, which he did. I mean, on the face of it, Sarong, one part of him knew that he was doing a futile thing. But anyway, Daniel's recording all this and he takes it back and reports it back to the Americans and so on and so forth. The basic thing for us to conclude from all that is that the people who we were told were the enemy in Vietnam were, in fact, the, the local people. You know, Terry Burstall, one of the, the greatest of the the Australian Vietnam veterans to write a book about the whole thing. Terry Burstall's written three books about his experience in the Australian Army in Vietnam. He was, he fought in the Battle of Long Tan and he wrote a book about that. But he wrote another book about how in the Australian Army they were sent up there and told that they were helping the local people against an invasion from the north. And he said, and within a months of being there, we found out that we were attacking the villages of the local people. Uh, in other words, we weren't there to stop an invasion. We were actually fighting against the locals. You know, and Terry Terry Burstall deserves to be given a very special place in the history of Australian military involvement. He was brave and courageous in battle, but he was very brave and courageous when he came back in studying the whole thing and facing up to what it was and, and writing it up and, and making it to put it on the record.
So what you're saying is that meeting with Sarong was a turning point for Ellsberg? With so many things happening to him, you, you couldn't make too much of it. I, in the, there's a terrific film about Daniel Ellsberg, I suppose. Have you seen that, the doco? Shown here, well, maybe, I don't know, five, ten years ago, but that you probably get that on one of those film services. By the way, I, I was just Googling, uh, there, there are three or four terrific songs about Ellsberg on YouTube, by the way, but, but talking about that, that film, what, why I'm jumping to the film is you asked me, was it a turning point? One of the real turning points for him in that film, where they interview him about much more detail than I can give you even now, he said that in 19, I think it's 65 or 6, he took Robert McNamara, the Secretary of the Defence, on a tour of the, I think they had the Eastern, divided Vietnam into three areas, one, two, and three, I Corps, two Corps, three Corps, something like that they called it. Ellsberg took McNamara, Ellsberg and others, of course, took McNamara around to give him a survey of on the ground what was happening. And in each place they got the commanders and the local soldiers all gave a picture to Daniel and to uh, McNamara of that the war was not going well, you know, that, the, that they had the, a lot of firepower, which is what Americans always have, but it doesn't necessarily bring you victory, that, that they weren't winning the war. And in this case, the local National Liberation Front, with support from the, by that stage from the Vietnamese Army, the National Army base in Hanoi, was winning. And they made notes and they made their reports and they discussed it. He said on the plane coming back from um, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City was then called, from Saigon to, um, to Washington, he discussed the whole thing with McNamara, you see, about how badly it's going. He said, and then uh, we're getting down off the plane, and of course, that here's the press corps to meet Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defence, back from Vietnam, the crucial issue of the day. And he steps off the plane, and, and the first question the journalist says to him, and how's the war going, Mr McNamara? He said, we are winning in every way. And Ellsberg says to himself, you know, We've just discussed this, and I know this guy rationally knows exactly what I know, which is that the war's not going well. What's the first thing he tells the American press? You know, he said that's the sort of thing that helped him. But Ellsberg was actually turned around by the moral leadership given by the draft resistors and the protesters. He actually he's spoken and written about that, how as a, as a principled person, and, and as many other principled persons in the American uh, armed forces also, once you started thinking about the moral question which is raised by the, the draft resistors and the conscientious objectors, they influenced him to think that he should take a stand. It's very encouraging to know that we don't often have success with our protests and so on, but it's interesting to know that people on the inside can sometimes be taking note and can actually, in Daniel Ellsberg, change their life dramatically uh, in solidarity with those who are raising the issues. And of course the demise of Nixon in the end changed the life of Ellsberg. He could have spent the rest of his life in jail like Julian Assange is facing at the moment. That, oh, that's right. I mean, uh, Daniel benefited from the enormous change in American public opinion uh, that that's saved him from jail. You're quite right. And it's, it's terrible that we don't have the same momentum on the, on the Julian Assange thing, although you keep putting pressure on there. So all we can do is work with people. But people around the world are taking up the Assange questions, not just Australians. A bit of a setback last month when the Biden administration knocked back a, a chance to settle. But anyway, I don't, did you follow that stuff about the, what they call the Watergate break-in? Did, did you remember that the Nixon actually went down because when they started bombing Cambodia, you know, which is an enormous war crime that he and Henry Kissinger cooked up and did, 
and they authorised a group of crooks, uh, they were called the plumbers in their coded name, to break into the offices of the Democratic Party to see who leaked to the Democratic Party the news of the, of the Cambodia thing. Well, the plumbers who did that were the same people who had broken into Daniel Ellsberg's office, uh, his office, I should say, in the office of his psychiatrist. Nixon and Kissinger were hoping to find that the psychiatrist would have some dirt or something to embarrass and discredit Daniel Ellsberg. The people are trying to, Nixon, they're trying to get Ellsberg, then um, went for a big one and trying to get the Democratic Party, and they got exposed on both of those. And it's the Watergate scandal on top of the Ellsberg scandal that leads to a whole lot of things then start to tumble out about Nixon. That leads to the impeachment, and he's the first president to resign and have to be forced to resign. Just I want to say something about Nixon. You know, Nixon got elected in 72, got re-elected, Though the Pentagon Papers had come out exposing how many lies the whole thing was based on, do you know how he did that? That he told the people, if you re-elect me, I will end the war, the election promise. Now, his secret plan to end the war was a thing called Vietnamization, to put more of the Vietnamese into the military and uh, uh, Air Force and so on there, and to put in a certain number of American uh, mercenaries under the name of contractors and so on, on and win the war. The, 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 one of the critics said Nixon won the war because he cooed like a dove, but he fought like a hawk. And it's just interesting how, just how uh, deceitful and, and tricky, they called him Tricky Dick, how deceitful and tricky he was. You know, just to mention that the, those of the listeners who are following the history of it, that uh, you, you've got to watch it now. When Nixon said, oh, I'm going to end the war, a number of people said, oh, we'll vote for Nixon, he's going to end the war. What you didn't know, unless you're reading it a bit more carefully, was that he was, it was really a secret plan to win in the end. Did you follow the career and life of Daniel Ellsberg after you met him, up until his death? Every now and again, you know. I mean, uh, my friendship was not one with him where we'd be sending letters or emails back and forth, but I actually have been in stuff with Robert on and off over the years. So that's my connection is to Robert, really, the younger one. <laughs> There's a good article on the web, by the way. It's a terrific interview for a magazine called The Plough in America uh, by Chris, um, what's his name, Heffernan or something, interviews Robert about the relationship between him and his father. It's really an interesting interview. Anyway, I just mentioned that. And what did Robert go on to become? Yeah, well, Robert went on to become a writer and, and a, a journalist and a publisher. He, he, His connection with Dorothy is really interesting. He was at the age of 21... Dorothy Day, age, I'll make it up, 76, some of that. After only 12 months in her organisation, she appointed him as the managing editor of her paper. Now, that's always a kind of a, a risky thing to do. You know, the older person fancies the talents of the young one, you know, and he's brilliant and so on. But she was spot on. He edited the paper superbly, and he has gone on in the intervening decades to be the person who, A, published a collection of Dorothy's writings, then he published her diaries, you know, which is an enormous amount of effort to, to transcribe people's diaries and make them intelligible to the public. And then he transcribed a whole lot of her letters. So he, he made a terrific impact on the whole post of death of Dorothy, the movement of Catholic work to understand how it happened and how it worked and what it's like. Robin Osberg is the actually key person in that. And then in, in, in the later years, his father got a contract from a publisher to do his memoirs. And in this interview that I'm talking about, it's on the web now from the Plough site, P-L-O-U-G-H, he says 
that dad uh, wrote page after page after draft and draft after draft. He couldn't get it right as a memoir. In the end, dad said to him, would you give me a hand? I think the other, one of the other brothers also works in publishing. I think so between them, but Robert did the, the key work of the editing. They got dad to write the first volume of the, um, of the memoirs. Um, Robert helped dad to write the first volume of memoirs. And then there's a question, he said, but I've left out some of the stuff of what I know about the threat of nuclear war. In particular, there's an incident, I think, in the 1950s when the Americans actually prepared to start a nuclear war with China. They called it off uh, after a number of stages, but they actually ramped up their air force in the Pacific and got them ready to, to, to nuke China, which we didn't know about until... Nobody knew officially about it until Daniel Ellsberg in his late old age, in his his 80s, when he started to reveal extra things. So Robert's got a a terrific record as an activist and writer. In the the death of Daniel uh, a month or so ago, Robert's been uh, interviewed and talked about him. Daniel has kind of become bigger in death than life for a whole new generation of people are reading about him and and learning about him. Well, obviously... Val, you've got fond memories of both Robert and Daniel. That's right. Oh, yeah. And how those things come to you? Uh, I didn't go to America expecting to meet somebody like that, but then the amazing thing to find his son working on the soup kitchen in New York was, yeah, I just I love it when those things happen. Well, thank you for that story. That was great. Okay. And I've been speaking with Val Noon, writer, peace activist. He's a fellow at the School of Historical philosophy studies at Melbourne University, also a former programmer here on 3CR. We're not meant to have anything nuclear in our country. It's really important and urgent that that Australia get serious about nuclear disarmament. Well, nobody anywhere on the planet has figured out how to deal with highly radioactive waste. Most of those who've managed nuclear weapons consider this to be the most dangerous time that we've ever lived in, with the danger of nuclear war at unprecedented levels. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Cheryl and Troy have been married for more than 25 years. They spent 10 of those years living on the streets of Melbourne, addicted to heroin. In a groundbreaking collaboration, photographer and writer Ali MC conveys the couple's compelling narrative in an audio-visual installation and photographic audiobook. H, A Love Story launches at Richmond Library on Wednesday, August 9 at 6.30pm. Entry is free and all are welcome. H, A Love Story a project about love, heroin and homelessness on the streets of Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Get lost in science. Tune in to 3CR every week to hear Beth Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. 
Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. The mainstream media has been full of stories about new submarines since the announcement of the AUKUS deal at the end of 2021. We're told that the biggest and the first aspect is the submarine deal, which is also called Pillar 1. But increasingly there are serious doubts as to whether these nuclear-powered subs ever eventuate, and even if they do, whenever, they will be absolute, or at best scenario, not required. Brian Terry is a colonist, author, and the title of his latest book is Secret, The Making of Australian Security State. Brian, there's so many aspects to the story of the acquisition by Australia of nuclear-powered submarines, and as the months go by, more commentators are expressing doubts and concerns. To begin with, what is known about the subs that Australia wants to buy from the US in the near future, and how many? Three and five, and probably second-hand ones, and um, that's what the idea is. But the Americans made very clear they don't have any to sell to us, either second-hand or not, and that reason is because they can't produce enough for themselves, and it's a big problem in Congress. So while we're still pushing on with all of this, we should grab that with both hands. Oh, well, (laughs) well, don't let us stand in your way. This idea is to be the ANSYS thing after that, we get Zion 1 with Britain and the United States just specially for us. And that would, I can't think it's possible to build it. That'll be built at Adelaide. But building nuclear submarines is just a terribly hard job. And it's shown up by the fact that the Americans cannot have more than a quarter of their nuclear fleet available at any one time because most of them in dry dock, China, or not dry dock necessarily, they're out of action because they're so hard to maintain. That's the next thing we're supposed to get. So we're supposed to end up with a total of eight. That will not be, you know, any time soon. So who's advising the Australian government that this is all going to happen in the next year or so? Where are they getting Uh, their information from? I think it's from the Navy. It's hard to know. This is the other thing, is that this has not followed the normal process. The normal process would be you'd have to, the government would have to do a comparative analysis of what's the cost effectiveness of going with nuclear ones or going with conventional ones and conventional will win hands down but they've not not done that and also albanese and the government they just inherited this from the previous government and albanese and and, miles they know nothing about any of this just nothing about it and um it's quite really weird there was a big study set up under the navy for a, a staff of 300, 350 people, but their job was only to tell the government what's the best pathway to getting nuclear submarines. Whereas the first question is, do you want the bloody things? Yeah. Well, let's look about talk about how reliable they are or how reliable they're not. Exactly. That's the conventional ones, like the, uh, the German ones, they have an incredible good record. They're hardly ever out of action. And what about the American ones? Well, American only has the nuclear ones, and 
that a qu- only a quarter of them are operationally available any one time, and that's the Navy's own figures. And Australia is going to have to tool up, are they, to learn well, how to in, make them? in theory, I, I think, I, it's impossible for them to do it. Down in Adelaide, where uh, they built the Collins class, but if the Americans can't do it, you know, properly, if only a quarter of them are available to anyone, we can't do better than that. It's just ridiculous to pretend that we can. What's their accident rate like? Also, they're not as safe as people make out. Only a couple of years ago, one hit an... Un- this is a nuclear submarine, an American nuclear submarine, sailing along blissfully in the South China Sea, and it ran into an underwater mountain. And the crew, quite a lot of the crew got injured... And then the Navy had an investigation, U.S. Navy, and it sacked the captain and most of the senior people, the senior people on the submarine, and there's photographs of the submarine being held up by a tug, a big tug, strapped to the big tug to stop it sinking, and it's got uh, the whole nose of it has been knocked off, and it's really, it has really looked terrible. And one of the problems is, they try to keep everything. They don't want anyone to know where the submarines are. Now, you can easily, and what most submarines do, is send out this sonar ping and it comes back to them. If they hit something, well, why on earth would you not be using that when there's underwater mountains that you can run into? Next, next time, they might run into one, one of our own submarines. Now, if they've got a tool up to make them, how are they going to train the, the crew? We had the, the show the other week about three or four or six sailors coming back or submariners coming back. They've been trained. They've been there for a month or so. Is that all you need to learn how to... No, that is completely ridiculous. I think it's a a four-year or a three-year course to become a submariner, a a nuclear submariner, that is. Uh, That is just absolute rubbish. And, And to make the things, it's just very difficult. We'd certainly have to, you know, we couldn't do it without the American help the help wouldn't be that good because it doesn't work for them too well. But that, I saw that thing about coming back as trained and they can't be trained in that time. Well, if they did, or say they could, eventually come to Australia, Defence Minister Miles tells us that he intends to make the Australian equipment interchangeable with the US. What does he mean by it, that? What he means by that is as soon as he became Defence Minister, he said in general that he wanted all of the Australian equipment to be interchangeable with the Americans. And the Americans think that's a very good thing because uh, recently uh, one of the really senior officials said, don't worry to the Congress, we're not going to lose any nuclear submarines, we can have them back any time we want. And that's, that was a reference to what Miles was stupid enough to say. And now they're doing it, this is not to do with submarines, now they're doing it with uh, letting the American defence intelligence people come in and, and sit in on everything we do. You can't have an independent country if you're going to let the American intelligence agencies write your intelligence uh, assessments. You describe the submarine as a, a glorified hot water system. What do you mean by that? I say that the, uh, the reactor is a glorified uh, hot water system because all it does is it heats the water for the the steam engines, it's actually steam engines that propel the submarine. And in the process, using a nuclear reaction to produce the hot water, it, it in turn leaves 
after time, spent fuel, they call it. And this is the uranium, highly enriched uranium, which is incredibly dangerous. Why have they chosen these submarines over the conventional? I have no idea because it makes no sense. A lot of people love the idea, including a lot of journalists. Oh, you know, we'll be punching above our weight or something or some rubbish like that. But there is no doubt at all that the modern conventional submarines are much harder to detect than nuclear submarines and that they are much, much cheaper and they are much more readily available. And that's because they're using new batteries, you know, new, new, very modern batteries, which can, don't have to be charged very often and uh, can go fast, etc., etc. We would be miles better off getting modern conventional ones, but the Navy doesn't want that. It wants to stick with, the, even if we're going to go with conventionals, they want to use lead-acid batteries, and there's a big problem there. They have to be recharged every day or second day, and to do that, You've got to come up to the surface of the water and while that, that process is going on to recharge the batteries, you can be detected by radars, etc., etc., and sunk. So if you care about the survival of the uh, crew, you know, Labor should be... Well, I don't think Labor's aware of any of this, but if, if you do, you would go with the modern conventional submarines which don't have to be charged every second day or two or come to the surface. Is the hidden agenda of these nuclear subs that we're going to have a, an international nuclear waste dump in Australia? Definitely. And that is one of the things that's been totally underestimated and underreported. I'll say that, oh, look, we could just uh, put it on top of some defence land somewhere. But you can't put what this type of waste is. This is highly enriched uranium, weapons grade, and that means it's done to 93% of it is actually at this level, whereas the ones that the French nuclear submarines use is only about 5% and the Chinese about 3 and that's much easier to handle uh, and get rid of, whereas this, it has to be, first up, it has to be, you've got to break up the submarine, dismantle the submarine when it's over, when it's time's up, and then take the reactor out and send it overseas for special treatment. Then it comes back here and it has to be buried in a really hard, impervious rock for, say, 400 metres underground and then monitored for hundreds of years. And, of course, what's, what's going to be the pressure point here is the Americans haven't done that. They should have. And the British haven't done that with their submarines. They have still got highly enriched uranium you know, running around, you know, just lying about the place. They have cost a lot of money to make it, put the security around it. So they'll say, well, look, you build this stuff and you can come and take it. We'll take, send your st our stuff to you. <laughs> I don't know how well that'll go down here, but uh, it's something that's been badly overlooked. And look, where the land, where the sort of rock that this is, is found is in parts of Australia where there's quite a significant Aboriginal land you know, issue, and they got treated. The Aborigines got very badly treated in the British nuclear tests. This should be the first thing that happens if we're going to get them at all. Is what do the Aborigines want to say? And if they say no, that should be the end of the matter. Well, surely 
in this day and age and in the years to come when these so-called submarines are available, people are saying, well, what's the point? They'll be obsolete. And also, they'll, as you say, they'll be people will know they're there, they'll be out of, they'll be out of um, shot down or destroyed or sunk or whatever. But that what is the really important point, is that it's, it's sort of very well established that over time, the sensors for detecting submarines of any sort and the, the computer power, data processing power, is improving all the time and that by 2050, the water will be transparent. You'll be able to see you know, anything underneath it. And oddly enough, the Vice Admiral who's, who's done this big study on nuclear submarines admits that that will be a very big problem. But his, his solution is to say, well, look, we won't expose our nuclear submarines to being sunk. We will use drones and the underwater drones and the nuclear submarines can hide away out of danger. Well, if you're going to buy drones, but if you get them, you don't use a massively expensive nuclear submarine to try to send them directions as to where they're going or what they're, what they're doing. You can have any sort of platform, a very, do it from a rowing boat, if you like. It is quite a bizarre situation. So by the time the submarines are available, they'll be easily sunk if they go anywhere interesting. And also, we, the other thing is, we don't have a clue what the world's going to look like by 2050. It, peace might have broken out. Alternatively, a war might have already occurred, etc., etc. But it's certainly not, one of the big things is they're all about, oh, we could be in danger, we could be invaded tomorrow. Well, China is not going to invade Australia tomorrow because it doesn't have the equipment needed to do so. But um, certainly, in which case, however, if the early thought that was important, don't get nuclear submarines because they're too, too late of arriving. And meanwhile, the war games continue in yes, Northern Australia? It goes over increasingly the wide areas of, of Australia and the mainstream media, particularly the ABC, seems absolutely obsessed with trying to point out that the two Chinese spy ships arrived. They don't, they don't leave international waters to have a look at it. Now, even though a senior ADF personnel said, look, this is not a problem. We know how to protect ourselves against this sort of spying. And basically what they do is they encrypt all the signals sent to back ships and planes and all that during the, during the exercise. They are encrypting with unbreakable encryption. So there's no use. The submarines, I don't know why they bother to turn up, but there's nothing much. There's no, they're no use, really. Yet the media still jump up and down about their arriving here. But don't say anything about the fact that we're doing much more uh, aggressive and much more potentially damaging surveillance or spy spying from planes, from big spy planes or surveillance planes up in the South China Sea. They drop sonar boys to try and find them or listen to the noise made by submarines. And they're made up of a, of a microphone or, or a hydrophone thing that's underwater and a radio to transmit back up to the planes or other planes when they've found the sounds being made by a submarine. And that all goes into a big sort of 
uh, inventory or a big sort of archive. So whenever they, if they want to hear those sounds, if they hear those sounds again, they know which sort of submarine it was. You know, if a war's on, it lets them sink them very, very quickly. Do you believe, as many people do, that Albanese and his government is out of their depth? Definitely. I mean, he, he's never, ever been interested in any of this stuff, and Mars is just out of his depth. In the case of Albanese, he said that in AUKUS, he had a two-hour briefing about the Australia-UK-US uh, pact, or whatever you want to call it, and uh, it, and then within the next you know, 12 hours or so, he made up his mind to back it. Now, the public don't even know what's in it. There is no text, not like the ANZUS Treaty, which has been published in Parliament, it's actually been put into the Parliament, and everyone knows what's in it, everyone can read it, but it's got some advantages, is that the worst thing from people who don't mind getting into wars is that the ANZUS Treaty starts off with the saying, we can't, we must not use military force uh, for aggressive purposes, and that's the same wording as in the UN Charter. The United States doesn't like that. But Albanese was foolish enough to say in an interview that Australia will never use force for aggression. Well, hang on. Did, where was he when the invasion of Iraq occurred? He was in, in, he was in power, I think. And then also in the case of the Vietnam. And, and no, no one picked him up in the mainstream media. Why didn't they say, how, did, how ignorant is this man? Well, that to me is, is part of the problem that we don't have a proper media to challenge these ministers on what they say. I, I think that's really important. I mean, why do they go harrying around about, about, even when the Australian military tell them these spy ships from China don't matter, they are still hounding away about it, yet ignoring what our spy planes are doing up in the South China Sea, dropping these drones, etc. And then the Chinese react. At one stage, they set up a, a fighter plane that came close and dropped, sorry, and, and distributed some what's called aluminium chaff that could potentially get into the engines of the big, the big plane, the spy plane. Uh, but the spy plane sort of landed without any trouble. But they were flying out of Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines been a long way from Australia. This was a sort of 7,000 or more kilometres away from Australia. And it's really none of our business. But if, if you were the Chinese, you'd be pretty worried about these spy planes flying right alongside your borders. But China doesn't do it to Australia. China hasn't put any spy planes off, uh, say, where, where our submarine bases at Fremantle is. One of the reasons is they don't have the planes with a long enough range to do that and they might get it someday. But at the moment, their military is structured uh, to try and defend the approaches to China. And we also got to remember that China has never, the modern China that is, never engaged in an aggressive war, in a major aggressive war. It did, I think very foolishly, have an incursion into Vietnam to try and punish it for getting rid of Pol Pot's regime. But it pulled out after it finished what it wanted to do, or, or it was going to get booted out by the Vietnamese. Uh, but that was not a big-scale war and uh, that was started by them. But they shouldn't have done it. But we've, we've been involved in a lot more aggressive wars than, than China has. 
and people still like to say that Australia is an independent nation. Well, I don't see how we can keep saying that because apart from... They, the Americans are now have very big B-52 bombers here and other bombers coming in here. We're going to let them base more and more nuclear submarines over at Fremantle. That uh, We've let them put a whole lot of stores here, uh, which we don't even know what's in those stores. You know, this is a case for a war. We're letting them uh, use our... We're joining together or integrating the American Defence Intelligence Agency and our Australian Defence Intelligence Organisation, well, you can't be independent if you're letting another country look at all the intelligence you produce. I mean, years ago when I was working in Canberra, the people in JIO, that's the, our one, sorry, the Defence Intelligence Organisation back then was called JIO, they were just adamant that no American intelligence officials could sit in and listen while they were discussing what their intelligence assessments were. So it's a big, big change. And when you think of what's happening at the moment, where does that fit in with your most recent book? That book, Secret, well, some of the things that have happened, oh, that book came out in, in 2019. Mm -hmm. Some of the things like us going ahead with nuclear submarines and that hadn't happened. But What's a lot, a lot of what's in the book is what the intelligence agencies have been up to and how much tougher our national security laws have got. They're so bad now and they're so draconian that we can no longer call ourselves a liberal democracy because ours are much tougher than in America or in Europe. And people often, or in some cases, there are supposed to be no defence to these alleged defences. I'll give you one example is that a law now allows you to get 15 years jail if you say something that harms relations with another country, brackets with the United States, that would be, and there's no defence. <laughs> it's just, it is really draconian. And why do you believe so? I think it's because the national security agencies are now so prominent and also ministers love trotting around the place reading some of this stuff because what they've got is big code words stamped all over the top and hardly anyone's supposed to be able to read this stuff and they think, oh, look what I'm looking at now. How am I, how am I lucky or something? Um, it needs a huge overhaul. A while back, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, that's one that has spies sent overseas to try and pick up some information or do other things. In this case... They went into Timor while it, while it was just about to become independent or had just become independent and bugged the cabinet room there. They were you know, dressed up and pretending to be aid workers when in fact they were spies and they also committed crime. And the person who uh, was defending Timor uh, in this action, they actually bugged his own office as a lawyer and then seized all of his documents relating to this. And yet it took for years before they finally, he was, you know, he was broke, he couldn't make any money or anything as a lawyer. They finally admitted that, that they'd pack it in, that they no longer were going to keep prosecuting him. But that is just an outrageous misuse of the intelligence agency's powers. 
have they gone after you in the past? No. Oh, in the past they have a little bit. I mean, there was, uh, when I was working for the National Times, they used to take some court cases about us when we published articles based on classified documents. But fortunately, they didn't win any of those. Uh, but the law has been changed a lot since then, making it much easier for them to win it, to win those cases. Final words? We need to have a huge rethink of how we're heading towards war, war with China. It has no interest at all in invading Australia and move right away from being so influenced by the Americans that we don't have an independent foreign policy anymore. Thank you so much, Brian. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and Brian Tui is a colonist and author, and the title of his latest book is Secret, the Making of Australia's Security State. Need an extra layer for the cooler months? We've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say Workers Radio. Available now online or at the station. Perfect for layering when you're out on the street. They'll have you picket line ready for winter. At $40, you'll get a great quality shirt ethically and locally manufactured by Qualitops in Reservoir. Order now and we'll post one out for $8.50. Or you can pick it up from the station. Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. We have seen record numbers of protests in Latin America recently, explicitly calling for an appropriate response to the pandemic, alongside the protection of healthcare workers and social and economic welfare for the population. Ecuador, Brazil, Bolivia and Chile have all grown increasingly feeble in their justifications for both a lack of action against coronavirus as well as their increasingly authoritarian behaviour. Suffice to say, the Latin American right is being undone by its contempt for public healthcare. Its contempt for an essential human right. And with their traditional backer, the USA, embroiled in its own pandemic nightmare, the kleptocrats, religious zealots and maniacs leading Latin America's right wing are now on their own, it seems. And the region's people, from all available evidence, are perfectly aware of this fact. And their actions against this public health and political emergency are becoming all the more radical. After all, it is a matter of life and death, as it has always been in Latin America. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website, 
go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Freedom of Species is a show about animals, for animals, listened to by humans. Tune in Sundays, 1pm. On the program last week, I played the first part of an interview with Palestinian writer and political analyst Jaffa M. Ramini. He spoke of the terror for he and his family as the Haganah militia burst into their home in 1948, forcing them to flee. He was five years old. He eventually made it to London, where he lived for 53 years, then to Fremantle for the past three continuing all the time his fight for Palestine. Today, the second and final part. I'll just mention another book that came in your nick of the world. You're in Melbourne, right? There's a new book that came out by Anthony Lewinstein called The Palestinian Laboratory. It's just published. Anthony and I shared the platform, though, on television with Al Jazeera a few years back. I don't profess to know him. He's more a friend of mine. But we shared the platform. He wrote this book and, and to show that how Israel is exporting occupation to the world. And if you'll give me a moment, I shall read you a quote from no other than Naum Chomsky on this book. And he said, I quote, a sad and sordid response, how, quote, the light unto the nations became the purveyor of the means of violence and brutal oppression from Guatemala to Myanmar and wherever else the opportunity arose. Again, this is a very renowned Jewish professor, Naum Chomsky, saying this. And the chap who wrote the book is another Jew, Anthony Lewinstein. But if you talk to the Jewish agency or to the Zionists, organization, those are self-hating Jew, like I am an anti-Semite. There you have it. Let's talk about organizations that have profited in some or many ways of that occupation and the subjugation of the Palestinian people. We've got Fatah, we've got Hamas, and we've got the Palestinian Authority, all Palestinian organizations. Can you talk about those? Their role in keeping the Palestinians down, in a sense. Let's go a little bit back in the history, because as I said, I was in Kuwait in 1964-65 when the Palestine Liberation Organization was started. Uh, And Yatta Arafat was in Kuwait. He was working as an engineer uh, for the planning authority of the Ministry of Public Works in Kuwait. And I met most of them. I have never, ever in my life, and I'm 80 years old, joined an organization. I'm just a Palestinian. I don't call myself a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or an atheist or agnostic or whatever. I'm just a Palestinian who's trying to make sense and find a solution to these 
problems that were inflicted upon us. We had no choice. We did not want to have war with the Jews. We never wanted it. And it, it was enforced upon us by those people who, yes, they were persecuted in Europe. And they came to us and we made them welcome until we realized that these people are not coming here to have a safe haven, but to replace us. What would any decent, sane human being do? Just lie down and die? We have to resist. And we did, and we still do. Now, back to Fatah and Hamas. Fatah was a liberation movement until Yasser Arafat decided to make it a political movement, i.e. he wanted to have a state. And I know from close quarters in London, the people who were working for the PLO office in London, who were talking as early as the 1970s with Israel to find an accommodation, namely with Abba Iban. I will not name the Palestinians for obvious reasons. And they wanted to say, look, we have Resolution 264. Let's forget war. Let's live together as neighbors. And that, Jan, is accepting only 22% of the land, i.e. the PLO sanctioned the theft of 78% of the land, which was occupied in 1948. And then they occupied remainder of the land mass of Palestine in 1967. Now, in, at this point, I want to remind your listeners, there was no Hamas, none. There was only the PLO and other factions, they used to be called the Fida'iyin, freedom fighters, who were doing great here and there through the Jordan, through Syria, through Egypt, towards Israel. And then Yasser Arafat went, it's all there in the internet, in 1974, he went to the UN and made his famous speech, do not allow, I come here as a freedom fighter with a gun in my holster and the olive branch in my hand, and don't allow me to drop the olive branch. He repeated it four or five times. The branch, not only dropped, it was burned. So did one million olive trees in Palestine uprooted and burned by Israel and the illegal settlers. Then, in 1987, Hamas, an Islamic movement, came to the fore. Only in 1987. And there are a lot of writings, I cannot sort of put my name behind them, that Shabbat, which is the secret service in Israel, the local one, was instrumental in creating Hamas for one simple purpose, that they will be against the PLO. And we know the first Intifada, the uprising in 1988, which we call the Intifada of the Children and the Stones, which rattled Israel to the core and showed the nature of that regime and the barbarity of the soldiers. And Mr. Rabin, who was then prime minister, called on his soldiers to break bones. And all this can be accessed on the internet. This same Mr. Rabin is the one who signed the Oslo Accord in 1993 with the PLO on the loans of the White House represented, the PLO that is, by this current 
president of the so-called state of Palestine, Mr. Mahmoud Abbas. Yasser Arafat, there is a picture, a telling picture on the internet, and I'm looking at it now in front of me, of Yasser Arafat extending his arm to shake the hand of Ishaq Rabin, and Ishaq Rabin not even looking at him until Clinton nudged him and they shook hands. I was in London, Jan, when Yasser Arafat came back, and I was invited to listen what he had to say. Not to make it too long, he called it the peace of the brave. And I wanted to say something. But two Palestinians sitting each side of me said, please, Jaffa, don't. It's not the right time. I kept my mouth shut, and I wished ever since that I have spoken out. But I have been speaking out against both Fatah and Hamas ever since. If we want to look at the world in reality, after the failure of the Oslo Accords and the assassination of Yasser Arafat in 2004, Hamas won fairly and squarely general elections in 2006. Those elections were the cleanest, the most honest around our area as attested to by international observers, amongst them none other than President Carter. They won fair and square. Not because the Palestinian people were enamored by Hamas, but they were fed up from the PA, the Palestinian Authority, which was created by the Oslo Accords, achieving nothing, totally nothing. And that is when Yasser Arafat discovered in 2000 that he was trapped, that there was no state, there will never be a state, and his job, going back to your question, is to police his people on behalf of the occupation. That was the main reason the PA, the Palestinian Authority, was created as a subcontractor for the occupation. There was another shameful treaty other than the Oslo Accord. Number two was the Paris Accord where the PLO gave the strength of our financial purse to the Israelis. What else does Israel want? There is somebody who's working for them. At the time of the Oslo Accord, Jan, there were 100,000 illegal settlers in the West Bank in 13 settlements. There is now 800,000 and counting. All of this is against international law. But Israel, it seems, is above international law. It's the exception. Nobody should touch Israel because Israel is the baby of the West, especially the United States of America. Tell me why you believe that. Since the peace accords or the peace conference in, in Madrid in 1990, there was a quartet at that time, the Soviet Union, America, Europe, and the Arab world. Then America took charge. They, they, they became the only, after the demise of the Soviet Union, became the only arbitrary, uh, if you like, conveners of these so-called peace talks. It's all about talks. It's a process. There is no peace. There is a process. Process slowly, 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 slowly gulping Palestinian land and taking Palestinians out. 
And if you look at the history, ever since Truman said yes to Israel, America has been subsidizing and enabling the state of Israel. Arms, money, political cover, and international diplomatic cover in the UN and the Security Council. America has cast more vetoes in favor of Israel in the Security Council than it did for its own citizens. I'll give you a very small example, which is now current. It's happening now. Four organizations, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, an Israeli NGO called Beit Slim, and another Israeli NGO called Peace Now, have labeled Israel as an apartheid and racist state. And so many other Jewish historians and writers said the same. So many organizations in Palestine did the same. The special rapporteurs on Palestine for the UN, all of them said so. Especially this latest current one, a lady called Francisca Albanese, said so on many occasions. This is apartheid. This is racism. This is separation. This is supremacy. Yet, only last week, Jan, the president of Israel was invited to Washington to address joint houses of Congress. And before he arrived, Congress rushed a resolution to say Israel not a racist or apartheid state. And the vote was overwhelmingly in favor, 412 votes in favor. And this is a gift for Mr. Herzog, who is the president of Israel, before he even arrived. And when he moved in, a very bland, boring speaker, people were popping up on us like yo-yos, standing ovation for all the lies and the fabrications he was saying. And to, to top it all, Mr. Biden invited Mr. Netanyahu to Washington. Netanyahu is now presiding over a fascist government. Yet, he is welcome in the corridors of power in the West. And that's why I think America is the real reason for the Palestinian catastrophe and many others around the world. Finally, go back to Janine, the most recent destruction and deaths over the last months. You wrote, what else is there for me to say? You feel you've said it all and how can I say well, any more? Yes, well, it, it is obvious. As, as, I, as I said, Israel has an agenda, and Israel is not going to deviate from agenda, and America is helping, and the West is helping, Australia is helping, Canada is helping, Britain is helping, and Mr. Mahmoud Abbas, who is the so-called president of the Palestinian Authority, cannot see beyond the words he utters about the security coordination between Israel and the PA. He called it sacred. So he sees the Israelis, America, Britain, and other Arab countries, when the PA was created, they did not offer us assistance. They offered us arms, light arms, mind you, because Palestinians they, they don't have an army or air force or, or, or a navy or anything, just a police force to police the Palestinians. And this police force was equipped and trained by Britain and America. 
General Dayton. And there is about, I think, either 70 or 80,000 of them. Their job is to quell the Palestinians. And now back to Jenin. I am from Jenin, and I receive minute by minute reports from Palestine about Jenin, from Jeninis who remember me or who read me, and I cannot name them because they live there. And when the refugee camp was attacked 10, 14 days ago, where were they, these so-called Palestinian security forces? They were hiding behind closed doors, waiting for the moment when they are given the go-ahead to go after the freedom fighters. And they did. And I received the document, whether it's true or not, I cannot authenticate it because I'm not there. I rely on honorable people to tell me that before Mr. Abbas was allowed, and the word is allowed, to visit the camp, there were provisos. You stop the coordination with Israel, you release the people you arrested during this trade, and then you are welcome to come and speak and go. He came. If you've seen the pictures, there was a sea of red berets around him. And how did he arrive, Jan? With helicopters provided by Jordan. And how Jordan was allowed to operate helicopters in Israel. Isn't that obvious that Israel agreed to it because there is something in it for Israel? And he came and he did his speech and he left. And what happened? Not one political prisoner was released. On the contrary, hundreds more were arrested. So that is the PA, and that is Fatah, if you like. Now, you want to talk about Hamas? I will talk about Hamas. I have no time for Hamas. I was invited on their, one of the stations in London who is supposedly affiliated with them. I don't know the truth of that. But I can, I'll speak when I can, because I have only the truth to say because any other thing doesn't do good for me if I am discredited that I, I find things and I use them without authentication. And I said it at their station. You, Hamas, and Fatah are the most enemies of the Palestinian people. And I wrote an article many years ago after I visited Jenin for the last time. And I said, release the stranglehold. You can find it on the internet. And you're not going to believe this, what I say. It was published in Jordan, in Amun News, in Jordan. I am against both of them. I am for my people. Those so-called rockets that Hamas launches over Israel, most of them don't reach their targets. Most of them are made in the sheds in some garden somewhere. And most of them are ineffective. And what they do, they invite the wrath of the fourth most powerful army in the world and the cheerleaders in the West. I will never forget it in, 19, in 2014 when the Israeli Air Force was hitting the hell out of, of, of Gaza and the CNN and Fox News and all of them Rockets, rain of rockets over Israel, rockets over Israel, Hamas, rockets, rockets, rockets. Not a mention of the 2,100 Palestinians who were killed, 500 of them children, or the total destruction of Gaza. Gantz, then the head of the Israeli army, 
said, we bombed Gaza back to the Stone Ages. And where is the Western media talking about rockets raining over Israel? What I called in, in, in London in one of my talks, fireworks. And because I said that, I was accused of being anti-Semite. I thank you so much for your talk today. And as we all know, the Palestinians are not going anywhere. No, we're not. And Jaffa M. Ramini is a Palestinian writer and political analyst. The fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes for fears, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. fight isn't just the Palestinians fight it's all our fight because it's a fight not just about land it's about a fight for freedom everybody should be standing here today saying free Palestine solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja nation my people who've never ceded their sovereignty we should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Green Left Weekly Radio. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. Tune in every Friday morning at 8am on 3CR. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road. And I had like this feast with a carrot, and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff, and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food that would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving 
everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Speaking once again with Professor Richard Tanter, and today the issue is the Australian government's secret list of US bases. Step back a few decades, Richard. It was well known that the US controlled Pine Gap in Central Australia. How many others were there in past times and are still there today? And what role did and do they play now? Well, if you go back to the 1960s, there were a very large number, I mean, more than two dozen, including sort of NASA, NASA space stations, which were definitely defence department missions. But that gradually got whittled down as the sort of American structures changed. And by the sort of 2000s, you were really only talking about Pine Gap, Northwest Cape, and a couple of others, mainly intelligence stations. Uh, so these things change over time. And of course, but the big change is that now we have American access to a great many more bases rather similar um, and, and probably, in fact, uh, greater than even in the 1960s and 70s. Can we thank Julie Gillard and the Labor Party for that? Well, we can certainly date it back to the meeting between Julie Gillard and uh, President Obama in 2011. Uh, the Americans had been planning it before then, uh, but that's when the explosion really started and it's just increased continually uh, both under Labor and Liberal coalition governments, but of course, again, under the Albanese Labor government, yes. Just give us an idea of, of how, how many facilities there are that maybe we've got a bit of input in and maybe we haven't got much input into. Well, that's a good question to which we don't have a firm answer about how many. If you step back a bit, I suppose one way of thinking about it, with the so-called joint facilities, uh, joint US-Australian uh, facilities, uh, which the government's nominated perhaps uh, three if four, four. One is Pine Gap, obviously. The Northwest Cape Naval Communications Station is another. Um, the Alice Spring Seismic uh, Nuclear Detonation Detection Station is another one. And quite recently, the government has declared that parts of the Australian Defence Satellite Communications Station uh, near Geraldton is also a, a so-called joint facility. The problem is the Labor government has also got come up with a new designation of what are called collaborative facilities, which are Australian-owned, um, but uh, to which the Americans have got a lot of access. And they seem to be saying, and we're not clear about this at the moment, they seem to be saying this includes, for example, very large air bases like the RAF bases at Darwin uh, and Tyndall and Amberley, uh, but also, of course, I suspect it also covers HMAS Stirling, the very large naval facility uh, near Fremantle in Western Australia. There are others that we're looking at, but we don't know for sure at the moment, and that, of course, is one of the reasons why we've been so anxious to try and press the government to formally release the list of facilities considered under what are called the agreed 
facilities and areas under the forced posture agreement of 2014. But so far they're staying mum. Well, for the ones that you do know about, what's the significance of them for us? Well, I think the big change is that whereas Pine Gap, Northwest Cape uh, and others were either intelligence facilities or they were communications facilities, What's happened now is the Americans want access to straight military bases. I mentioned the naval facility in uh, at Fremantle, uh, but particularly the huge upgrades paid for by the Morrison government and the American government for RAF base Darwin and RAF base Tyndall. These are important Australian facilities to which the Americans now have not just access, they have their own parts of these facilities. And this is a huge change. And they have a particular, if you like, strategic implication because they're very clearly part of an American plan for what the military call force power projection. In other words, being able to launch offensive operations by air or by sea towards whoever they may like, like to consider, i.e. China. What other countries have similar force posture agreements as the ones we have with the US? Well, in fact, a great many countries, as you might imagine, given the nature of what, quite frankly, is the American empire of bases. Um, But if you only restrict it to countries which have got agreements which specifically use that phrase, agreed facilities and areas, I, on a fairly brief tour around Google uh, search, quickly found almost 24 or 25 countries already, and I'm sure there are many more. And these are all over the world. What's really interesting about that is that whereas our force posture agreement with its designated list of agreed facilities and uh, areas, what I think the government is now calling collaborative bases, whereas our government will not tell us what on that list, countries which are, you would have thought, fairly important American allies, such as Poland, Norway, or even Hungary, and the Philippines, they have published the lists of which bases they have allowed the Americans access to. And I find that really very interesting. Do you believe that, or could you conjecture that the armed forces in Australia and indeed the Australian government don't have a full picture of actually what is happening? Well, that's possible. I think more likely, really, on this particular... There are certainly some matters I suspect they don't know the answer. Uh, So the answer would be no in a few cases. But in general, no, I think they know what's going on. I think in general, this goes against what Australians often think about themselves, but I would say Australian political culture, um, the the culture of Australian government is much more authoritarian than that of the United States. And most of what we find out about these facilities, of course, comes from the United States, from congressional sources, from budget sources, and so forth. What's really interesting is to ask the question, what have you know, Poland, Norway, the Philippines, Hungary got that leads them to you know, require the Americans to name the bases? Because you have to have both sides of agreeing to name them and yet Australia hasn't got that whatever it is a spine or a, 
a better sense of sovereignty. This is really quite startling that the Australian Defence Department and the Australian government believes it is important to withhold that information from Australians. That's quite different from what's happening in some other countries, and which are you, equally important American allies. And when you think of Australia as a very, well, I'd say compliant society, you just wonder what they're frightened of. Well, it's very hard to understand that, isn't it? It really doesn't make sense. I mean, I, I'm certainly prepared to uh, entertain an argument that there may be some particular facility where there is at least a plausible, if not a genuine argument, that it's, um, it has some real level of secrecy that needs to attach to it. But I certainly can't think of one in Australia, and I've not heard the argument put that this is the case. We know these are going to be airfields, military bases, um, air bases, because that's exactly the kind of thing that's listed for Norway, four different uh, airfields from memory. In the case of Poland, now a very important American ally in the, the war uh, in Ukraine, and there are, I think, more than 20 bases that they name, and they're what you would expect, air, for, air bases, training bases, and so forth. So these are not referring to you know, the pine gaps of the world when they were secret. These are normal military facilities. So I think the Australian government basically does not trust the Australian people. I think that's really what it's about. And when you think of most of those people, most of those countries, they're in the area of China or Russia, if you like. But when you think of Australia way down in the Pacific Ocean... Well, I think that's a fair point to make. But equally, I think you'd have to say certainly as far as the United States is concerned, and I think also as far as China is concerned, that Australia is now an area of strategic uh, importance. And so on the American side, they have what they call called the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, which is means really distributing uh, American aircraft on more bases than just in Guam, where they're rather vulnerable to Chinese attack, distributing their logistics uh, and fuel supplies in many more places. So now in Darwin, there's a huge facility with, from memory, it's about, it carries about 300 million litres of aviation fuel. The new Osmond Agreement just uh, signed the other day gives the United States access to what the RAAF calls bare bases. These are, you know, uh, bases with fairly straightforward facilities and pretty rough. But there is one in Western Australia called RAF Curtin, another one called RAF-based Sherga up in Cape York. And the Americans have now got access to those, not for the giant B-52s, which require immense um, facilities to operate and very much hardened runways and things like that. But these are places to put logistics and fuel just to make Chinese military planning more complicated. And I think we do have to face the fact that whatever one thinks about China, the fact that the Americans are deploying these facilities and the, or these capabilities and the Australian government is cooperating, that brings us into... Chinese military thinking, even if it wasn't there before. So we are drawn into these things, like it or not. What efforts do you and others make to try and tease out 
these secrets that the Australian government doesn't want to tell us? Well, with the, together with the excellent lawyer, Kelly Tranter, I've submitted Freedom of Information requests on these lists in different forms. We were refused, and we were refused primarily on the ground that I think there's a clause in the Freedom of Information Act which excludes release or exempts release of documents, I'm quoting from memory here, which the release of which would either essentially embarrass us with our alliance partners or endanger relations of trust between officials. And we're now applying under the American Freedom of Information Act for the same documents. We may or may not get them, who knows. But I should say that the independent Peaceful Australia Network, IPAN, uh, took a different approach and asked the Defence Department Secretary, Greg Moriarty, quite directly, please give us this list of um, agreed facilities and areas. And they didn't get the list, but what they did get was an explanation of that the list had not been developed immediately after that forced posture agreement. And it wasn't until a year later that a new memorandum of understanding was signed. But unfortunately, you can't have that Mr Moriarty. Uh, the interesting, interesting thing about that is that that was in the middle of this year. That MOU was signed in 2015 and in the intervening eight years, no announcement was made. Parliament wasn't told. The media weren't told. Even the fact there was a memorandum. So it's really, I think, important to take multiple approaches to simply press the government to release the fact of the matter. Perhaps the secret stuff you will have to try harder, but it's really just having media outlets such as yourself simply saying, give us the agreements. This is a basic right that all Australians should be having. So multiple approaches and certainly peace movements are really beginning to become very adept at pressing for this these material. Are there certain parliamentarians trying to get this information through and trying to get it discussed in Parliament. Is that an issue? Uh, there has been some very important work done on something that I'm involved in on the planned rotational deployment of B-52 strategic bombers to the RAF base Tyndall, which is up near in Northern Territory, uh, just outside Catherine. And the Greens uh, have been very active in Senate estimates impressing the government on various aspects of that. So they had only moderate success, but they'll keep trying. And I think we need to hope that some of the teals take up this. One would like, of course, to think a Liberal opposition would, as an opposition, uh, want to raise these matters. But of course, what we face is the bipartisan agreement between Liberal and Labor or coalition and Labor uh, on defence policy. So we need to look at the Greens, we need to look at the Teals, we need to look at other independents for support in Parliament. And I believe we'll get it at some stage because these matters are really quite outrageous and they're based on the government attitude, the shared coalition and Labor attitude, that the Australian people should not be trusted with this information. Is it indeed more hopeful of getting this information from the United States because... They don't have such strict policies? Well, the Americans have very ferocious policies about secrecy, and of course we're seeing that 
exercise, those views exercised outrageously in the case of Julian Assange at the moment. But more generally, if you think about it, empire costs a lot of money to run. And so the money has to be raised through congressional budget allocations. And while there's massive amounts of corruption and waste involved in that, it does require at the moment the Defence Department uh, and the military to make representations, not just to Congress as a whole, but to individual Congress people, to get the political support for the budget, the allocations they want, quite directly. And basically, I find out, and other researchers do too, vastly more detailed and reliable and really quite open information in US in congressional budget documents than we ever do from the Australian government. And that's partly because there's a fun fight. These people in Congress can think of other uses for the money. They may be uh, sort of China hawks or whatever, but they still have to work out how limited amounts of money are going to be distributed. So there has to be an argument as to why you need to spend, uh, in the case of RAF-based Tyndall, Australia has spent, under Morrison, has spent about a billion and a half dollars on it, Australian dollars. The Americans have already allocated almost the equivalent of half a billion dollars Australian to it already and a great deal more to be planned in the future. So they have to justify that to some extent and that means they have to put it on paper and explain it. And that's much more than we get from our government. As you said, the US is willing to spend billions and billions on these infrastructures in Australia, Mm. just Australia, and and the Australian government spent one and a half, Australian government spent one and a half billion on Tyndall. Have we got any idea of how much all these facilities actually cost us, the taxpayers here in Australia? Well, we we do and we don't. One of the things is that, um, you know, there are very detailed defence budget papers submitted every year in in the budget papers, but they're not very straightforward. In fact, I was attached to RMIT University for some years through the Nautilus Institute, and I was trying to work out another version of your question, how much money were we spending, this was around 2012 or so, how much are we actually spending on our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? And the advantage of being in universities, you can go and talk to some people who know much more about some of these things than you do. So I went to a senior accounting professor and asked them, can you help me, go me, take me through these budget papers? And she said, okay, um, yeah, just leave it with me and I'll come back and talk to you in a couple of days. And she did. She came back and she said, well, look, I can't really tell you the answer because I really feel that these budget papers are an example of a government trying to hide things from people. In other words, they're not laid out in a way that would be accessible and understandable by ordinary people. That's not a conspiracy. It's just really they don't care about explaining these things to us. And so it makes parliamentarians' jobs, for example, incredibly hard if they want to ask sensible questions about this. So um, my own view is that the basis of any political action, of course, is you know the things that we care about and value most, but also, unless you know what's happening, unless you have reliable information which is accessible, then you really don't know what's going on. And I think many governments are quite happy with that situation. Well, finally, Richard, as the push to 
demonised China continues, you can only imagine that things aren't going to get much better, are they? They might get worse. I think we're actually at a very worrying situation. All the signs are that despite the transition from Trump, who is very evidently a maniac, to Biden, who is a, a liberalist Democrat, that we're still very much in the time, particularly even I think it's heightened under Biden, if you like, a more rational version of Trump in terms of, as you said, demonising China in formal terms, the US considering China a strategic competitor, and that really translates down to a country that we need to stop doing what it's doing, in other words, being so successful. And I think that what's really, really frightening in that trajectory from the Gillard government with its uh, agreement with President Obama through all the intervening Rudd governments and then uh, the Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison horror shows through to Albanese, that we have, it seems to me, come to decide that we agree with the Americans that China is a threat to us and that we want to cooperate as much as possible as we can to build not just military capacity, but also technological capability to thwart China. And that's certainly a recipe for disaster. And it makes an organisation like IPAN even more important. Well, IPAN is a great success story. Peace movements come and you know, grow uh, and then sort of die down again. They died down in Australia at the end of the Cold War. IPAN is a, a genuinely national organisation, which is hard to do in Australia, I think, and they've done a remarkable job over the fir- their first 10 years of existence. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Jan. And I've been speaking with Professor Richard Tanter. Richard... Work for the Nautilus Institute. He writes on intelligence and strategic questions. He's a former president of the Australian Board of ICANN and was Professor of International Relations at Kyoto Seika University from 1989 to 2004 and an active member of the peace movement here in Australia today. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.